this Easter weekend, I, I thought we could take some time to reflect back upon some of the events that took place during the last days of Jesus' earthly ministry and see what lessons that we can learn, see what lessons we can apply to our lives here in the 21st century. You know, I think that we all realize that Jesus lived over 2,000 years ago here on this earth. And, and that understanding leads some to question whether his story is even relevant to us right now. And I personally believe that these stories from Jesus' life, these stories that we're going to look at from Holy Week are more relevant now than they've ever been. So come with me on a journey back to the final days of Jesus' life here on earth. The first place I would like to stop is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want to stop here because I find hope in that garden. Gethsemane is an urban garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And the name is derived from the Aramaic, and it means olive press, olive press. This garden is rich with history. And a study conducted by the National Research Council of Italy in 2012 they found that several olive trees from this very garden are some of the oldest known to mankind. Those trees have seen a lot. And one of the things that these trees witnessed was the God of the universe in human form, anguishing in fear and pain. As the trees gazed into the darkness of that night, they, they see the garden living up to its name as Jesus himself is being squeezed like an olive in a press to the point that the Bible tells us that sweat is dripping off of him like drops of blood. They can see that he is sorrowful, that he is troubled, then they hear him say to the disciples who he has brought with him, my soul is exceedingly sorrow, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. This is the same Jesus that the Bible shows commanding the storm to be still, driving out demons and making confident declarations all along the way. He says, I, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Same Jesus. We're used to seeing him speak with, with strength and conviction. But on this night, the trees overhear sobs of weakness. They see pain etched on his face. He looks weighed down, almost defeated. Do you, dear friends, feel weighed down and defeated by circumstances in your life? Have you ever felt so much sorrow that you felt as if you were going to die? Do you feel depressed and fearful? 
when considering your past, your present, or your future? Does it seem like you can never count on your friends? Do you ever feel alone in this life? If you've answered yes to any of these questions, and I just want you to take out your Bible right now. Take out your Bible. Turn to this verse in Matthew 26, 38. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Turn to this verse and write down two simple words in the margins. Jesus understands. Jesus understands. We serve a God who does not just intellectually know about the struggles of this world. He experienced them for himself. He's felt them. He was hurt by them. He's been crushed by them. He knows what it's like to experience sorrow that is so heavy that it feels like it's pressing the very life out of you. Jesus understands. We then read, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What exactly is this symbolic cup that Jesus is referencing here? Jeremiah chapter 25 speaks of a cup in the hands of God that's filled with the wine of his wrath against sin. This was the cup that Jesus came to drink. In eternity past, Christ covenanted with the Father to drink of this cup. It's what he came to earth to do. Yet here in the garden, the trees are watching a very real human struggle unfold. They watch as Jesus wrestles with obeying the Father and avoiding the cross. And this is very helpful and reassuring to me. I can know that Jesus wrestled with the Father's plan for his life and his death even as he sought to submit to it. I too have wrestled with the Father's plan for my life even as I have sought to submit to it. And I'm sure you have too. Sometimes we cry out to God and we feel as if our prayers aren't answered. And the devil whispers in our ear that we aren't good enough, that our sins have separated us from God, and and that's why he's not answering our prayers in the way that we want. But I want to tell you this morning that that is a lie and a delusion. And how can I know this? How can I say this? It's because if anyone deserved to have their prayers answered, It was Jesus. It was Jesus. Yet God said no to his son's petitions. We don't always understand why God seems to grant some petitions 
yet say no to others. But we also don't see the end from the beginning. The father said no to Jesus so that he could say yes to you and me for all of eternity. Jesus drank every drop from the cup of wrath so that you and I can drink from the cup of salvation forever with him. Even though Jesus was struggling as he told the Father what he wanted, he was firm in what he wanted most of all. We see it right there in the verse, right? Jesus said, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's okay to be honest with God about your struggles, about your fears, about your worries and anxieties. And then we see in verse 42, again a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus was able to give up what he wanted for the sake of what he wanted more. He had a greater longing to fulfill the purpose and plan of God, namely our salvation. Here is the hope that I find in the Garden of Gethsemane because it's here that we discover that it is, it's really possible to overcome our own wants. As we are joined to Jesus by faith, his perspective is shared with us and can become our perspective. His power through his spirit can flow through us, giving us the strength and the determination to do the things that we are weak and unable to do in the power of our own flesh. By his spirit, he is actually changing what we want, changing our hearts. It's a process, and it's probably a process that many of us wish was a little bit quicker. <laughs> but they say patience is a virtue. But the thing is, is that we can begin right now to enjoy just the taste of that inner strength and that hope that we receive through his spirit. We trust that if our will is lost in his, we will not ultimately lose out. As we bring our wants and pour them out before our Father, we can say like Jesus, I want your will to be done, not mine. Maybe add that to your prayer life. Try it out. Like I said, it's okay to be honest with God about your feelings, about your desires, about your wants, about your asks, but End it with that claim, God, I, I trust you in your will, and that's ultimately what I want most. Through his spirit, he gives us the grace we need to say it. Not through gritted teeth, but with open hands, ready to accept whatever it is that God gives us. So we've, we've gone to the garden. Now, let us journey to the trial. 
We've seen that Jesus ultimately gave up his desires, submitted fully to the Father's will. But what does that mean for Jesus? What did it actually look like for him to live that out? During the entire second half of his ministry, Jesus taught his disciples that they would face criticism, hostility, and rejection, just as he did. He he was giving them a warning. He was giving them a heads up. He didn't want them to be caught off guard. What can Jesus' arrest and trial teach us about our own calling today? When I reflect back on Jesus' trial, what I find is true love, true love. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said this, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. True love is the willingness to put someone else's life above your own. True love is putting others' needs before your own. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, right? Judas. And then he was examined about his identity by some of his own, the Jewish leadership. He faced Pilate with his life hanging in the balance, depending upon what he would say. The stakes were extremely high as he stood before that Roman governor. His life, was on the line, yet Jesus trusted in his father. He did not seek revenge against Judas. He did not seek to defend himself against Pilate. He didn't fight, back down, or show fear in the face of this trial. Pilate is shocked that Jesus didn't respond as he would expect somebody in Jesus' position to respond. In fact, Mark 15, 5, it says that Pilate was amazed, amazed. Jesus rested in the confidence of his identity. He knew who he was, but he also knew who was in control of the entire situation. He went so far as to say this, John 19, 11, you could have no power at all against me, unless it had been given you from above. Now, he's talking to one of the most powerful men living at that time. (laughs) Bold words, Jesus. (laughs) But he could say that because he completely submitted himself to the will of God. A plan had been laid in the past and was being played out in the present in order that the reward could be experienced by us in the future. Jesus was pulled back and forth between Pilate and the Jewish high priests. And finally, the question was asked, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus finally responded with this, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, Jesus' reply was not only an affirmation that he was 
the Messiah, but an assertion that he would sit with the Father in heaven. This right here, this was the remark that the Jewish leadership considered to be blasphemy. Verse 64 tells us that. Please don't miss the irony here. This word from Jesus about the Son of Man seated at God's right hand is technically what got him crucified. The religious leaders had thus far failed to get any testimony that they could take to Pilate and actually get Jesus executed. And then Jesus, he supplied the testimony himself. After he was beaten and mocked, they took him to Pilate where he was crucified for sedition for making himself a king that Rome did not appoint because Jesus' kingdom was not of this world, made the rulers nervous. But Jesus was so committed to going to the cross for us that he supplied the very words that got him crucified. That is how deep his love is for us. How should we then respond to resistance, to rejection, like Christ did, like Christ did? By trusting God in the face of opposition, whatever that might look like. By resting in the identity God gives us as his children. So what lesson do I learn from the trial? I learn about true love. True love is laying down your life for a friend. Jesus laid down his own life for each one of us. He tasted the second death so that we don't have to. Jesus is love personified. We've been to the garden, we've been to the trial, but now I'd like to make a quick stop by that tomb. What lesson could we possibly learn from the tomb of Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus died late afternoon Friday, and it says in Luke 23, 54, that he was laid in the tomb and the Sabbath drew near. The ladies went and observed where his body was laid in verse 55. And then verse 56 says this. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils. And they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. So they looked to see where the tomb was. And then they went home to prepare these burial spices. And then they rested on the Sabbath. Jesus rose from the grave early Sunday morning. So even in death, Jesus rested in the tomb on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus had a a resurrection to make happen here. These ladies had Jesus's body to prepare. Both important tasks, very important. Yet they still took time to rest. So what do I learn from the tomb? The importance of rest. God himself rested after creation. 
how much more do we need it as humans? In today's fast-paced world, it seems that nobody has time to rest. Nobody has time to slow down. And people are so exhausted these days. You know, I often, when you ask somebody how their week was, and I find myself guilty of responding in this way too, a lot of times the response is busy, right? (laughs) Busy. I was so busy. And sometimes because of the go, go, go culture in which we live, we wear it as a badge of honor. I just go, go, go. Don't have time to rest. Don't have time to slow down. Hear the voice of God. Spend time in the Bible. Spend time in prayer. People are so exhausted these days. And lack of rest is, it's the cause of many fights, numerous accidents, and even severe physical and mental health risks. More and more studies are coming out about rest, sleep, and it's important. It's important for our bodies, yes, but especially our brains. Yet Jesus here His time in the tomb is reminding us of the importance of rest. Are you stressed out, dear friends? Do you feel that you've often got too much on your plate? Are you tired? God has given you permission to rest. Rest. I find it fascinating that of all of the commandments. The fourth one, the one about the Sabbath, is the only one that starts with the word remember. And it's as if God knew in his foresight that we would get so busy that we would forget about the power of rest. We visited the garden. We've witnessed the trial. We thought about the tomb. Now I want us to meet some of the people in Jesus' life. Jesus had many, many people come in and out of his life, his ministry. But when we speak about Easter specifically, when we speak about Holy Week, when we speak about Good Friday, I usually hear the same thing repeated over and over. All of Jesus' friends abandoned him. That's That's what I hear but this simply is not true. Because if you take time and you carefully read these closing moments of Jesus's life, you realize that the women all stayed. The women all stayed. It was the women who stuck with Jesus. At the trial, all of his disciples, they deserted him. Jesus was in a room full of men that didn't like him, and that they, they did nothing but, but lie and attack him and try to prove that Jesus was guilty. And I find it astonishing that we only hear one mention of a woman in this scene. Matthew 27, 19, it says, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. That's all all there is, just one, one verse. 
Pilate's wife wakes from a nightmare in which she felt haunted by Christ and sends a message to her husband. Her message that Christ is innocent is the only word of truth spoken during that entire trial besides the words of Jesus. Wow. Has anybody seen this picture before? It's entitled Christ Before Pilate. Christ Before Pilate. It was painted by the Hungarian artist Mihaly Munkaxi in 1881. And it was an immediate success. During its first showing in Paris, he was being hailed as the new Michelangelo, the new Rembrandt. And those who viewed this enormous canvas, and it was enormous, 20 feet long, 13 feet high, they reported feeling immersed in its drama, surrounded by the fury and the tension of the scene that the painting depicts. But soon, viewers began to ask a question They started to ask about who is that young mother of beauty standing by the pillar and looking so intently at Jesus. She's the only woman in this room full of fanatical men. I'll help you out a little bit. Do you see her there by the pillar? Baby in arms. Could this be Pilate's wife? It is very possible, considering she was the only woman mentioned throughout the entire trial. At the cross, once again, we we see Jesus' closest disciples. They've run off in fear. The men who had stuck by his side for the better part of three years had now deserted him in his most painful and embarrassing moment. Were they ashamed? Were they afraid of being arrested? We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that once again, the women were there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. Her sister was there. Mary Magdalene was there. Mary, the wife of Clopas, was there. Salome was there. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, was there. These women, as the Bible tells us, followed him from Galilee, they stayed with him until the bitter end. While the men argued over who would and wouldn't deny him, the women silently kept guard and watched their friend and savior breathe his last. They wept at the foot of the cross. They followed his body to the tomb in order to see where he was laid. They prepared the spices and the fragrant oils for his burial. The women were the first to the tomb on Sunday morning. They found the stone rolled away. They spoke with angels. They told the news that Christ had risen. Women were the first gospel evangelists. And we spend so much time focusing on the failures of the disciples that we forget to acknowledge the successes of the loyal and loving women. The men may have left, but the women, they stayed. 
In the first century, women were not even eligible to testify in a Jewish court of law. Josephus said that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because, quote, of the levity and boldness of their sex, unquote. Celsus, the second century critic of Christianity, he mocked the idea that that Mary Magdalene was allegedly there to witness right after the resurrection. He referred to her as a, quote, hysterical female deluded by sorcery, unquote. I, I think Mary Magdalene was probably used to people saying terrible things about her. She, she'd heard it plenty. But this, this background, this historical background, it matters because it tells us two crucial truths. First, it's a theological reminder that the kingdom of God turns the systems of this world, the systems of men on their head. Against the culture of his day, Jesus radically affirmed the full dignity of women and the vital value of their witness. Second, it's a a powerful apologetic reminder of the historical accuracy of the resurrection accounts. Because if these were cleverly devised myths or fables, women would have never been presented in the Bible as the first ones getting to the tomb, as the first ones spreading that message. Because as we've seen, the mindset of the majority of people in those days was women can't be trusted. So if you wanted to create a, a, a fable, a myth, a lie, and you wanted people to believe it, you don't put women as finding that the body is gone, that the tomb is empty. When I reflect on those who stay, the women. I see courage. I see strength. I see fearless loyalty. And as I look to Jesus on the cross, I see all of these things. All of these things we've discussed here this morning. I I grasp onto hope because I can see a, a future without sin an eternity spent with my God. I see true love in a God that was willing to become a man and die for me. I experience rest in a Savior who has done it all for me, in a Savior who said, it is finished. I find courage to face whatever trials may face me in this life, knowing that Jesus, by my side. Hebrews 12, 2, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I hope that as you read this verse, that you recognize that term, the joy, and who that is. The joy that led Jesus to endure the cross. The joy that led Jesus to experience and eventually defeat the shame. The joy, dear friends, is you. 
It's you. Eternity with you. The thought of eternity with you was set before Jesus. He saw it. That thought led him to endure the cross, the shame, and ultimately death. He did it all for you. Yet he can't force you to accept him. He did it all just for the thought of you. The hope that you, dear friend, would accept him. Jesus paid it all for you. And so I I just want to leave you with two questions. Do you believe it? And do you live? as if you believe it. I simply want to leave you with with those two questions today, dear friends. Keep your mind focused on Jesus this Easter weekend. And as you wake up tomorrow, comfort yourself with the truth that he is risen. And before we pray, I want to invite Ellie Castagnon forward. It's going to fill in for Chongo. Chongo's requested that. Just come forward, stand at the foot of the steps. Ellie's one of our elders here, and I'm going to have the benediction, and those of you who wish can be dismissed. But once I say amen after the benediction, I'm going to step down as well. And if there's anybody here that you have any specific needs, any specific requests, maybe even a a joyous praise that you would just like to share. We would love to talk with you. We would love to hear from you, and we would love to lift your petition, lift your praise up to the throne of grace. Let us pray. Our loving, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his life, his example. But Lord, we also thank you for his death and his resurrection and what that means for each one of us. It's the gospel message. It's why we can have hope. It's why we can have the assurance of salvation because Jesus died for us. He rose again and he's coming back soon. Lord, take this kernel of truth and bury it deep within our souls. May we not just reflect upon these things on Easter weekend, but every single day of our lives. Give us a prayer in our hearts each morning of gratefulness to you. And as we lay our heads down each night, may we do the same. Lord, give us the desire for more of you. Give us the ability and the trust to unburden ourselves and to rest. Lord, speak to us. And may we not only hear it, but as we heard in our children's story this morning, may we learn to listen and obey, to trust and obey, 
Lord, we don't know what all you have planned for us this weekend, but Lord, give us opportunities to praise you and give us opportunities to share your love and your grace with somebody else. We give this all to you and we believe that there is power in this prayer because we ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.